0: Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. The show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and
1: Google Podcasts. Good morning, here we are again with the air raid siren from Odessa and in many other regions in Ukraine. This is how our morning starts. This is how our nights were here, for those of us who are currently based in Odessa and in Ukraine. This is terrorism. This air raid siren for hours every day sometimes is terrorism. It's a PSYOP, psychological operation, because it is here to cause fear. It is here to demoralize Ukrainian population. However, people in Ukraine are very strong. People just go on with their lives. And so will I, inspired by the Ukrainian people. Today is 9-11, a sad day in U.S. history. Each of us carries our own story. I was originally scheduled to be on United Airlines Flight 93, from New Jersey to San Francisco, my hometown. But I changed my ticket at the last moment. As you might know, this flight was hijacked by terrorists. What happened on this flight still haunts me. The passengers and the crew discovered the truth, they heard about the attacks, and they united, voted to fight back in the very back of the plane. They decided to regain control. Well, they didn't. The plane eventually crashed and took all lives on board. But the plane missed its intended target, and that was believed to be either the U.S. Capitol or the White House in Washington, D.C. Fast forward to the present. We find terrorism in a different context. As Russia conducts its war of aggression against Ukraine, just think about the ongoing fake Russian elections in occupied territories of Ukraine, where Ukrainian citizens are coerced into voting and they also forced to lie on camera about the fairness of these elections under the threat of violence. Nightly drone attacks on Odessa seaports, deadly strikes on Kostantinivka and Krivi Rih. And we spoke and reported from Kostantinevka. Those attacks targeted busy residential areas like markets to maximize casualties. How is that possible? Many ask me. I get a lot of emails. How can Russians do such things in 2023? Well, let's look at history. A very brief look reveals that political terrorism in Russia has deep roots spanning at least 150 years. Some historians even argue that Russia is the birthplace of modern terrorism. On March 1, 1881, a radical revolutionary group known as the People's Will – (Narodnaya Volya, assassinated Russian Emperor Alexander II in broad daylight. It was a public act – that claimed many innocent bystanders' lives. This act was a blunt message. Accept our ideology or face dire consequences. The success of this murder, of this first act, was made possible by the invention of dynamite and the telegraph, because it enabled news of the explosion to reach and manipulate the general public. Collateral damage was justified by Russian terrorists in the name of their beliefs. The historical record is rife with Russian terrorism and politically motivated violence, including two bloody 20th century revolutions, the horrors of the civil war, and the Red Terror campaign against perceived, quote-unquote, state enemies, enemies of the people. In more recent history, the FSB, just the KGB here, the security services in the Russian Federation, in collaboration with the government, with the Kremlin, orchestrated a series of bombings in Russian cities in 1999. They attributed these bombings to Chechen separatists, ultimately propelling, unknown at the time, Vladimir Putin to power. Through the Second Chechen War, the readiness to employ violence and the tradition of eliminating political opponents continue to influence Russian domestic and foreign policy. And here we have the question of negotiation with Russia. Negotiating with terrorists proves futile, which is why the Kremlin's latest quote-unquote peace negotiations narratives appear as a mere ploy, just to buy time, regrouping. The destruction of the black Sea seaports and grain storage facilities during grain deal discussions with Turkish President Erdogan is a blatant attempt at blackmail. It imposes requirements with a ominous undertone. Today we will speak with a very special guest, the former Norwegian military attache in Ukraine, Hans-Peter Bitton, will discuss with us the counter-offensive, humanitarian, legal and environmental aspects of the war. Hans-Peter Mütten has broad international experience from both operations and postings abroad for NATO, Germany, Spain, Belgium, and Ukraine. Uh, his service includes seven years in command of frigates and six NATO deployments. Peter served at the Norwegian Joint Headquarters and Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe before being posted to Ukraine as the Norwegian Defense Attaché in 2014 2018.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Serena, this lovely morning. You know, like so many people, I'm just one head trying to struggle to understand what's happening and taking place in Ukraine. I've done this for nine years and I'm still. Struggling to recognize What's happening?
1: (laughs) Right. And I'm speaking to Pete uh, from Odessa, and he's in Kiev. Today is 9-11. The world today, especially the U.S., will be talking about terrorism. Everybody will be saying never again. Meanwhile, the Russian Federation continues to consistently use terrorist strategies. They attack sleeping civilians at night night after night, busy public places in the middle of the day. So they incite fear and openly threaten the world with nuclear weapons. What do you think about Russia as a terrorist state, it being recognized in the world as such? And what measures the global community should take, in your opinion?
0: It's a good question, and I, I, you know, In my mind, I'm no doubt that that Russia meets the criteria for terrorism or state-sponsor terrorism. There's no given definition of terrorism, of course, but I think most would see this as um, um, something like the calculated use of violence to create a general climate of fear in a population to thereby bring about this particular political objective, this strategic aim and objectives, if you like. Um, and that fits Russia perfectly, not only because of its atrocities against the Ukraine and the Ukrainian population, but also being in mind its its strategy, this hybrid war, which in a sense goes directly to the heart of it. It's it's a part of the battle in the in the cognitive space meant to create fear, to manipulate population decision and, and the policymakers to make those decisions which serve Russia interest. So, so, yes, you, you, Russia meets all of those criteria, And I think the bottom line of that is, how should we respond to it? Well, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We shouldn't negotiate with it. Actually, we could, should give, go further. We should deny Russia the voice in the international space. We should um, not only ban the, the, the Russian media and, and Russian social media and the trolls and so forth, but we should also take away the voice of Kremlin, family and because we keep quoting them we give keep giving their message to the world and, and we shouldn't allow that but but equally important i think it's crucial for us to question the seat of russia in the un security council a state sponsoring terrorist has nothing to do in this u.n security council and not least we should fight terrorism we, we should to intervene in Ukraine, in support of Ukraine, to fight Tyson uh, on its ground.
1: I can't agree with you more. And these are brilliant steps. I hope people are listening and I hope that the global community will proceed according to this plan. You write daily reports for Euromaidan news and I recommend it to our listeners. We are going to follow your uh, layout. The first question is on military. What is your latest assessment of losses incurred by the Russian army in the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive? Can you provide some Insights into the strategies and tactics employed by the Ukrainian armed forces during this counteroffensive? How has the military landscape evolved since the beginning of the counteroffensive? I
0: think NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg captured the essence of the losses brilliantly just a couple of days ago. He said, The Russian army used to be the second strongest in the world, and now the Russian army is the second strongest in Ukraine. I think that reflects brilliantly what happened in the last 18 months. Russia was at its peak militarily 23rd of February last year. It's not longer the case. Ukraine, however, keeps getting stronger because the inflow of Western support is well, if not increasing, it's you see new capabilities being on being brought on the table, which will transform Ukraine's ability to fight. Um, and and so presently, Ukraine has to. Initiative, whereas Russia, while well, it has lost eight, nearly 80% of its in- initial manpower one and a half years ago, we're talking about about 700, casualties, both killed in action and wounded in action. It lost most of its conventional army, mind you, recognizing that most of the Navy and uh, Air Force is untouched, if you like, still intact. And Ukraine is increasing in size, in strength, and capabilities. So that initiative is on Ukraine's side these days, and that's great news. I have noted some of the um, discussion in, in media, particularly media. I think those are uh, inflating uh, this idea of expectation on Hollywood to breach through and, and victory in Ukraine. And this disappointment is based on, on false premises. Ukraine is doing something non-Native countries would endeavor to do. They are doing a counteroffensive without air supremacy, without air control, without air power. Lacking some crucial capacities like air defence and mine um, clearance equipment, while being forced to preserve some of its um, ammunition stocks, is tremendously difficult. And of course, it will take time. And I think uh, Ukraine is doing brilliantly. They are fixing. first they are fixing uh, Russian forces along parts of the uh, the uh, the front line, denying it the possibility to to transfer or reinforce the hotspots where Ukraine has its main effort, brilliant. Secondly, it is and has been for a long time still shaping the battlefield. It's it's attacking Russian command nodes. It's taking out the logistics, ground line of communication, and breaking down the will and motivation of, of the Russian forces. More importantly, it's 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 increasingly targeting some of the crucial capacity of Russia. We've seen it. Take out and target the, its artillery, and presently the the losses is is as escalating as we speak. Last month they achieved they destroyed some about 680 pieces of artillery. This month, if the trends continue, if it does, it might reach about 900 pieces. So Russia is quickly fast running out of of um, you know its main tool to stop the Ukraine in counter offensive: artillery. And thirdly, and it needs to be said, it needs to be stressed even, Ukraine is doing this slowly, methodically. You know, it's incremental, moving forward slowly, bit by bit, until it reaches to the first, second, and third line of defence. And after that, everything will change quickly. I use the um, analogy like watching a carving of a glacier. You know, if you sit down and watch that glacier, it will be extremely boring. But it doesn't change the fact that within that glacier, every second, every minute, the forces at play is is increasing. And even increasing to the point when it suddenly costs It's dramatic, it's collapsed totally, t- exactly like the Ukrainian counter will be. Uh, you ask me about the landscape, military landscape, is a difficult answer. There is a war drones. I, I think that's the biggest transformation we've seen in the last 18 months that the both parties are bringing into the battlefield tools which will continue to play a more important role on the battlefield. Ukraine has the initiative, but we're also seeing that the inflow of Western's defence support is slowing down, not because of lack of will or, or lack of support, but because NATO is not prepared for a protected war. That will, at one stage, impact on the battlefield. The good news is that that also happens in Russia. They're not producing anything close to what they need to uphold this in intensity of warfighting. And that happens as Ukraine is also increasing its own production of, of defense. We are in for a potential long war, and it will be a long war until the West decides to, to intervene. I fear.
1: Thank you. This is so valuable because it really sheds light on the inner works and inner mechanism of the military process. And we need this understanding. Thank you, Pete. My next question is, what are the humanitarian challenges faced by Ukraine as a result of the counteroffensive and as a result of the war, and particularly in terms of displaced populations and humanitarian aid efforts?
0: It is such a huge question, isn't it? I find the humanitarian side, of course, Extremely important uh, for so many reasons, not at least because of the human tragedy behind all of this. I mean, what are the numbers we're looking at? We, I believe civil casualties something in the region about 150,000 to uh, civilians. I know the official numbers, the one they can verify is dramatically smaller. But we've seen indication occasion that people like Moipoole, um, might have between 100,000 and 113,000 casualties alone. Uh, and we have no clear pictures on, on the occupied territories what has transpired. And uh, we know that the numbers are high. they we're talking about more than 6 million refugees, close to 6 million internally, displaced this, this space person, about 17, 18 million people in need of humanitarian aid, and not at least about the 4 million people who's been forcibly displayed to Russia. I mean, the numbers are so mind-blowing. That the number itself is, is an issue. That it does not reach all part its ongoing war. Hotspots where, you know, international organizations do not get access. They do not get access to occupied territories. And as, as I said, also because the scale and scope is so tremendous, that it's difficult to reach everyone involved. But if I should focus on one topic, one issue, the biggest challenge with the uh, humanitarian tragedy is the demographic change to Ukraine. When we are seeing a transformation of Ukraine altogether, we see millions potentially never coming back to Ukraine, having impact on its economical uh, future, its ability to rebuild and, and rebuild after the war. And it will, will change potentially Ukraine forever. And I think that's something... Um, We need to support Ukraine to to change that development. The good thing is, Ukrainian refugees is seen as a tremendous uh, force of good. In the countries they are. I mean, they are really a resource. In one sense, it's something to say, I wish they could stay, but they really need to return to help rebuild Ukraine afterwards.
1: This is also very important. And we do speak about demographic changes. And we will address this topic here in podcasts more. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers,
0: and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com
1: at Malcontent News. On the legal part of life during the war, can you elaborate on the legal aspects of Ukraine's response to the Russian offensive, the international legal frameworks, and ongoing legal proceedings. What implications do legal cases, such as the Ukrainian oligarch Igor Kolomoisky corruption case, have for Ukraine's fight against corruption?
0: I am uh, no legal expert, but but the legality of the war is is, is itself extremely important. And, And how we fight war is equally important. I made a point when I, I present what's happening in Ukraine to explain to audience that any armed forces, whatever country, the armed forces reflects the country, the values and principles of the country they represents. Ukraine armed forces being a part of democracy. You know, we see that reflected on the battlefield, how they adhere to a legal framework, the international law of war. If like. And I can see that equally well and clear on how Russian armed forces, how they go about level of they the, the crimes against humanity. And this is, in a sense, a fight between good and evil. Uh, and at the moment, uh, Ukraine is the only one properly standing up for you know, both representing the legal uh, framework of, of war, uh, as well as defending that very same framework. Because in essence, this is not a war about, only about Ukraine territory. This is also a war, Russian imperialistic war, challenging the very framework ensured security, stability and prosperity of Europe since the Second World War. And I fear NATO and the West is not properly standing up, defending that security architecture as it should do. Credit for Ukraine for doing that. I'm a little bit shamed by our lack of, of moral standing, if I may use such a strong term that when it comes to Kolomoysky, you know, he's, that's sort of um Kolomoisky is important, but it's only part of a wider effort to fight corruption. It's important to say that the fight against corruption is far more crucial than just the fight against corruption. The lack of efforts and lack of response over time have direct impact on the Ukraine economy. And therefore, it's armed forces. You know, it has lost the opportunity to rebuild. Returns during the first eight years of the war. When the full-scale war started 24th of February last year, some of the military critical vulnerabilities Ukraine had eight years before, that is 20th of February 2014, when it was started, were still very much in place. Not saying that the armed forces had not changed because it had tremendously, but some of the critical vulnerabilities which are open for Russian exploitation were still in place. And the reason for that is. Corruption has undermined Ukraine economy, thereby undermining Ukraine armed forces and its ability to deter future aggressions. So this is crucial. This is absolutely crucial and fundamental for Ukraine survival as an independent state in the future. Cannot be stressed enough.
1: Environmental. How has the environment been impacted by the war? Uh, What efforts are being made to address the damage to infrastructure and contamination, say, mines? And what are the risks, on everybody's mind, of Putin using uh, nuclear power plants as a dirty bomb?
0: One of the reasons I put environmental into my reports is to try to address some of the topics which have global impact. Because there is, often you feel the notion that the war in ukraine is something not you know far away it doesn't sort of touch me it does in the same way as it does an economy cost of living and everything else environment is a very crucial important part of it and it has it's fair to say that the war had had tremendous impact on on, on the both ukraine as uh, as well as the region and the world itself uh like the transformation of the U- european energy policy you know it has brought even greater focus on green energy. At the same time as we've seen thermal power plants being continued, supposed to be closed down because of lack of energy security. We've seen in Ukraine 174,000 square kilometres of area, rich agricultural areas, decimated by by mines and uh, unexplored ordnance. We see Pollutions being brought into nature because of destruction of buildings, industry, and so forth, huge impact uh, on the world and will have for decades to, to come. The biggest threat, however, and I think that's sort of ironic, while the war world is fearsome of acting resolutely in Ukraine in the support of Ukraine for fear of a nuclear confrontation. We have seen for 364 days war fighting between Ukraine's fifteen nuclear reactors. And every day we live with the potential of a, a nuclear catastrophe like Chernobyl, only bigger in scale, scale and scope. Every day because of the ongoing war. Uh, and we sort of uh, learn to accept that risk while fearing a hypothetical nuclear risk that I I think never will really materialize. And I think that alone is one of many crucial arguments for Western intervention. We need to stop that war before that catastrophe happens. The question is, can we ever imagine Russia doing that, you know, using a nuclear power plant as a dirty bomb? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think that is highly likely, even. Um, because every time we think, thought that Russia has done its worse, it do worse, and it do worse because the international community allows it to do so. It has no real consequences. Like when they blew up Kakokka Dam, nations faced their concerns again, but did nothing. And so I think every time we do nothing, we motivate Russia to do more.
1: Exactly. And what it is if it's not an act of terrorism and ecocide at the same time. And speaking of the lack of the response, can we touch upon the very new development, the G20, uh, lack of clarity in their resolution on condemning the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine? And that is a part of the bigger Kremlin peace negotiation narratives that Lavrov spoke about right after G20. To be honest, I,
0: I'm greatly concerned by this statement, uh, and the reason for that is, while most people focus on a conventional war and, and even focus on the land war in, in the east and south of Ukraine, in my mind, this has always been a hybrid war. Russia has always been exploiting all of its tools, non-military and military means. What we saw 24th of February last year was just a shift horizontally from the non-military means to the military means. That does not mean that the non-military means like diplomacy, political, information, energy, economy, and so forth, they're not at play. They're very much at play. And what we're seeing coming out from this 20 meeting is a part of that. We see a, a diplomatic effort. They changed, they're influencing the global narrative on the war. They allow them to present this war as a Russia-Ukraine war only, when in reality it is, a and it was a part of a global or Border the confrontation between Russia and the West. Ukraine is a very crucial element of the war, but it is a part of Russia's ambition for global power. And it cannot be a global power with Ukraine, but it's becoming a global power to have global impact. And we need to recognize that with a great power, with aggressive foreign policy like Russia, that will change security and stability of Europe forever. We cannot afford that. I'm really annoyed by the West accepting that narrative. We should never do that.
1: I can't agree with you more again. And I know we see eye to eye on all of these matters, including the hybrid war. And that's why we were co-authoring the port for Euromaidan for about a year and a half. We alternated days. I've been writing about the hybrid war for 10 years, alerting the United States about the information warfare efforts from Russia. It, it is still not heard. The world is not paying enough attention to the threat that Russia as the a state sponsor of terrorism is presenting to our global community. And we are here today on the anniversary of 9-11, voicing it loud and clear. The world needs to intervene. The world needs to get more clarity and we need common effort to stop Russia. Thank you so much, Pete. That was really special and I hope to have you as a guest again.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: As I think of terrorism today, here's a thought. Ukraine refuses to be hijacked. Ukraine refuses to negotiate with terrorists. Rather, Ukraine fights back. The morale is high after a year and a half of a full-scale invasion. Odessa's cultural events schedule offers classical and jazz music concerts, drama theater, poetry readings, excursions, art exhibits, ballet, opera, and yes, dance parties. I will invite you to some of these remarkable events. I want to finish this podcast with a moment of silence for all the victims of terrorism and with an Odessa tune played by jazz musicians Mikhail Oksida and his friends.